All right, welcome to the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Horn. Fantastic having you here again this week. Hope you all had a nice Labor Day for those of you that celebrate. And if you don't, hope you just had a good week anyway. So, as I mentioned last week, I was going to focus, this is not on an individual case like we often do on this podcast. This is more, again, of an educational kind of episode. And I mentioned last week that we were going to focus on how white-collar crimes are prosecuted versus conventional crimes. And whether it's the United States or just about any country you're listening in, I'm pretty sure you have a dual system of justice, which is, it's very different how wealthy and elites are prosecuted versus your average common criminal. It's no different here, I'm sure, than a lot of other places. So yeah, we know there's two different systems of justice in the U.S. and in probably a lot of countries throughout the world. But it's not really been given a whole lot of look from academics or the Justice Department or anything like that. But in the 80s, 1980s, the Bureau of Justice, U.S. Bureau of Justice, published a study about the prosecution of white-collar crimes. And going to share that a little bit with you. Now, keep in mind, this is the 80s. Some of these things have changed, and hopefully sometime down the road, we will be able to get a, our hands on a study of something more more up-to-date to now, but I think you can get the gist of how it is, and I would say it's probably not changed a whole lot 30, 40 years later. Now, how white-collar crimes are prosecuted? Well, According to their studies, about 88% of them that are detected are actually prosecuted. So that was a little surprising, I think, to a lot of people and because we have this notion that because these crimes are often committed by wealthy elites that they're not prosecuted at all. Well, they are prosecuted, but when it gets to sentencing is when you're going to see a little bit of the discrepancies. So 88% of them are prosecuted. When it comes to violent crime, that's compared to 82% of violent crime, which I think you can attribute some of that to the fact that victims oftentimes of violent crimes are not willing to testify against or file the complaint for the case to be charged, and that could be the result of why violent crimes are actually prosecuted a little bit less than white-collar crimes. Property crimes, 86%. I think the same thing probably applies there. You probably have people who are just not willing to prosecute or to testify or file the complaint or anything like that. And down to public order crimes, this is 81%. This, these are your prostitution, vagrancy, public drunkenness, disorderly conduct, crimes of this, what they call public order crimes. Now, it's interesting. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time about that, but... It was noted that back in the 1990s, when Rudolph Giuliani became mayor of New York, his administration kind of focused on actually targeting these nuisance crimes, as they were called. And believe it or not, it actually had a overall impact in the decline of the crime rate in that city. People think a lot of times if you just focus on the big guns and ignore the little crimes, that you can reduce crime. But the actual opposite was shown to be the case in this scenario where concentrating on these public order or nuisance crimes actually did reduce the overall crime rate. Now, well, we'll talk about conviction. Gets a little bit different here. 
So 88% of white-collar criminals that are caught doing their deeds actually get prosecuted. 74% of those are convicted. So some of them are either found not guilty, acquitted, or the case is just dismissed for whatever reason. Lack of evidence, lack of cooperating witnesses, on and on. Violent crime, as we said, 82% get charged, but only two-thirds, about 66% of those are convicted. Again, that's probably attributed to lack of victim cooperation. Property crime, same thing, 76%. Public order, 67%. So as you can see, there's pretty close trend to all of these. You got about a 10 or 15% of the cases that are charged are either acquitted or dropped later. So even though a lot of them are charged, not all of them are found guilty. Some make plea bargains some of them a small percentage of them go to trial and as i said there's a percentage of them that are never charged at all or it's dismissed or they are actually acquitted now the data or i'm sorry the sentencing when we're talking about incarceration rates this is where things start to change the white collar criminals that were convicted now we're down to about 60 percent of these that are actually so 74% are convicted 60% of them see some form of incarceration now keep in mind that could be the county jail or that could be prison either one and the percentage of these that don't see either most likely get some type of probation or community sanction violent crime incarceration rate stays pretty consistent about 67% Property crimes, 65%. Public order crimes, down to 55%. I think that could have a lot to do with the fact that a lot of these are misdemeanors or crimes that are punishable by a year or less in jail. And many of these type of misdemeanor and public order crimes are punishable by fine only. And a lot of them, the most common sanction for these for sure is some type of probation or community sanction. Now, this data was collected from eight states. They collected the Bureau of Justice statistics, collected this data from California, Minnesota, New England, I'm sorry, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Utah. That at this time, and actually Virginia, I'm sorry, Virginia was included in this as well, because this at the time was about one-third of the total population and was the about equal proportion of serious crime. Now, the most common white-collar crimes that were addressed in this study were forgery, counterfeiting, fraud, and embezzlement, all crimes we talk about on this podcast because those are all very common white-collar crimes. Now, at the time prior to cybercrime, because keep in mind in the 1980s, you really didn't have, people didn't have internet then, you really didn't have cybercrime like you do now, so it wasn't something that was thought of. So this is a time prior to that. But it seems at that time, white-collar criminals were at least prosecuted somewhat equally to street criminals. So a little bit of a surprise maybe for some of you because we, and and don't get me wrong, plenty of white-collar criminals aren't prosecuted for the deeds they do. But it looks like at least according to this study, they did at least get prosecuted somewhat equally, maybe a little bit less, but pretty close to a lot of your common street criminals street crimes. They were, however, also convicted at a similar rate. But as I said a second ago, where it all changes at is how they are actually incarcerated or sentenced. 
And this is a much lower rate, as we saw, for white-collar crime compared to violent crime, property crime, other forms of conventional street crime. And their sentence rates were only equal to public order crimes. As I said, most of those are considered nuisance crimes. They're bothersome, but they're not considered serious crimes. They are mostly misdemeanors, punishable by a year or less in jail, or as I said, often a fine or some form of probation. And even though the white-collar crimes are oftentimes much more serious than that, the offenders of these crimes are incarcerated only at a rate similar to people who are committing these petty or more nuisance misdemeanor-type crimes. So I ask you, is that fair? Well, it was noted that these stats were from the Uniform Crime Report. And for those of you not aware of that, that is the national FBI uses this. They gather crime statistics from every police department in the country, and they submit the number of crimes reported uh, divided by the number. I can't remember how it's all done off the top of my head, but it's done by in order to the population in order to determine. And I should know this off the top of my head because I've taught this in a lot of my classes, but it is something that they use to determine the rate of crime in an actual area. Now, some say it's not necessarily accurate because if people are reporting crimes to the police, that could mean that the community has a good relationship with the police and therefore crime is not out of control. People are just comfortable reporting it to the police. Or, and that could be true because in a lot of areas of high crime, the population may not have a good relationship with the police and therefore crimes aren't being reported. So there could be a little bit of validity to it. But nonetheless, it is the number one uh, crime stat meth- gathering method that's used in this country. Now, more serious cases, such as insider trading, were handled by regulatory agencies like the SEC, and they didn't factor into these stats. So whether that gives us an accurate picture or not, probably not, because you do have some of these white-collar crimes that are not being prosecuted or factored into the statistics. So we really may not get a complete, accurate look at it. And nothing wrong with that, because I always... You know, statistics was the hardest class I think I got through in grad school, certainly my least favorite. And I always think of that quote from Mark Twain. I think he said there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. So something to keep in mind. But I'll have a little bit more to say about this subject, actually, because I did want to give a little bit of teaser. I am going to have a book coming out very soon about spotting a scammer and some of the things that go on into white-collar crime. Hope to have some information on that to you very soon. Maybe hopefully as soon as by the end of September, and I'll have information where you can get that. Really excited about that, as I've been excited about the... Got three audio books that are due out now at any time. Two from Cherry Hills Publishing, one from Beacon Audiobooks. Certainly will encourage you to check those out. And In Danger of Judgment was one I did, if you remember, last year. You can certainly get that one now on Audible or Amazon. Book by David Rubin that I narrated, a crime story that takes place in Chicago. And you can always check out what I got going on as far as voiceover work at ryan-horn.com because I'm always trying to update that. So please, and if you ever need a voiceover service, please contact me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. Glad to narrate your project or give a voice to it. But this is a subject I'm planning on tackling in the book. So be sure and stay tuned for that. We're going to have all kinds of information how you can get that out and get your hands on it. And it's all made possible even tonight, this podcast, 
Again, I do want to take a second here to welcome the Weekend Angler on the YouTube channel. He is now a sponsor of ours. We are certainly glad to have Josh aboard on this. Check him out. He is an awesome fisherman. If you enjoy outdoors and fishing like I do, you'll enjoy his channel. And we are certainly glad to have you aboard on that, Josh. Welcome aboard. And as always, like I said, too, you will get updates on this. If you don't follow our Facebook page, please follow the White Collar Crimes Facebook page. You can get updates on the episode, the book, the audio books, whatever. And we're going to have some offers where you can get a free copy of this book when it comes out. So please stay tuned for that. So what's it all come down to? It comes down to the D word. This is something I teach my classes that I teach, the college courses I teach. Discretion. That is one of the most important, if not the most important, word in criminal justice. No matter your position, if you're a cop, probation officer, correctional officer, prosecutor, judge, whatever, you have an enormous amount of it. And prosecutors probably have more discretion just about than anybody in the criminal justice system. Are prosecutors willing to prosecute white-collar crimes? Well, as we saw earlier, yeah. I mean, the statistics certainly show that they are at least to charge them and prosecute them. But then we get to the more difficult part. If it goes to trial, are juries willing to convict these offenders? We certainly saw they do have a slightly lower conviction rate, just a little bit from conventional street crimes. But this is where it really kicks in is when the sentencing come down, comes down. And that will always be at the discretion of the judge. And the judge is the one that's going to pass down this sentence or accept a plea bargain because if the prosecution and the defense negotiate a deal, if it's a soft sweetheart deal, the judge does have the right to reject that. A lot of people don't know that, but they do. The judge can reject that and pass down his or her own sentence. So are judges willing to pass down fair sentences for white-collar crimes? Well, as we saw a little bit ago, even though a lot of what they're doing is very serious and felony level, many of them are being sentenced at a level that's similar to petty nuisance uh, public order type offenders. As I said before, public drunkenness, prostitution, vagrancy, disorderly conduct, crimes like that. Those are the ones that white-collar criminals are being prosecuted on, even though the damage they do to their victims most of the time is far more serious and long-lasting than what the victims of these petty public order crimes result in. So judges also have that discretion, and it's huge. And it's believed that white-collar crimes are also very underreported. And there's simple reasons for that, because oftentimes it takes a long time to detect these. The victims don't know they've been, been scammed or are being scammed till way down the road. And as we said before, too, on this podcast, there is often a big distance between the pros, uh, the victim and the perpetrator because it's not like a street crime where somebody commits an armed robbery and holds a gun right up in your face you see that assailant and you have a very close proximity to them when somebody like bernie madoff is ripping off tons of investors from all over the country and the world he is not going to know any or maybe none of these people that he's ripping off at least not on a personal level or know who he's ripping off so that is one of the huge ways that white collar crime differs from conventional street crime and could be one of the key the two of the key reasons right here why these crimes are vastly unreported compared to a lot of other crimes although we know a lot of sex crimes violent crimes things like that are also highly unreported in our criminal justice system here in the u.s as well so will this change we don't know again it's going to come down to discretion are we going to find judges 
and pro- are prosecutors willing to prosecute these cases, and are we going to find judges willing to sentence them? It's also, and I'm going to talk about this in the book that's going to be coming out soon, what role the regulatory agencies like the SEC and some of these other ones are going to play. That's a, a Securities Exchange Commission responsible for a lot of financial regulation and rate detra- or detecting a lot of financial crimes. These agencies are going to have to use a lot of resources to detect and investigate these type of crimes. Hopefully they will have the resources to do so. So some criminologists, they claim that white-collar crime is more difficult to detect, and that's why it is not prosecuted so frequently. Could be. I gave you two good reasons just a second ago why that may be the case. So just the fact that these crimes are difficult to detect compared to others could be the reason why it takes so long for some of these offenders to be brought to justice. So according to the report from the Harrison Law at Harrison and Harrison, or I'm sorry, Harrison Law at Harrison and Hart LLC, fines are actually higher for white-collar crimes. But common sense tells you these are also people that can oftentimes afford these. If it's a multimillionaire or even billionaire hedge fund manager, a $5,000 fine is not going to mean as much to the single mom or single dad that's unemployed and trying to support three or four kids. Huge difference here. So fines... Yeah, they might uh, hurt me or you, but the other people we don't. Best and w- or could be the worst example of that was the Stackler family that we talked about a couple years ago, almost two years ago to the day, back in September of 2021, did a podcast on the Purdue pharmacy that was responsible for OxyContin and the Stackler family who was behind all this. Very vicious and just quite honestly, not very nice people. And they profited greatly off the pain and addiction of this country. Illegally, we might say in a lot of ways, but at the end of the day, not a one of them did time in jail. And even though they were worth about $11 billion, they got a, you know, a handful of fines and things like that. Decent amount, but certainly not enough to break somebody with money like that. So they still live happily ever after. And none of them have apologized or, as I said, done a day in jail. Just a little bit of a fine for people that were worth $11 billion. Certainly they were probably able to afford that. So that's a big difference in how these cases are handled. Definitely the fines might be higher, but they're also given to people who can't afford them. So despite its frequency, white-collar crime is still not studied or researched at the level of street crime. And I was guilty of this too before I started studying white-collar crime in grad school. I didn't know a whole lot about it. My experience in corrections and, and probation and whatnot at this point had only been with mostly street criminals, but I was blown away when I studied it just how vast it is. And that's why through this podcast and the books coming out and other things that we have going on, we hope to educate you on and the general public on that because we don't white collar crimes don't get the media attention, they don't get the academic attention and research and things we need, even though it's very frequent and the damage to its victims is oftentimes more long term and harmful than what victims of street crime suffer. So we're definitely glad we can help put the light out on this issue. Another problem is it's sometimes these white-collar criminals are members of corporations that have deep resources, and with so many people in it, as we saw with the Ford Pinto case that we did a couple years ago as well, it's hard to pin it down just to one person who might be responsible for these actions. And they can hide in the vast number of people and just like a sea of vagueness on there, but you're not going to be able to tell who the bad guy is. 
And let's face it, money talks. These corporations have big, deep pockets. They can battle these things out in court that the average person does not have the resources to do. So these are problems it runs up to. Hopefully, like I said, we can get some more updated, although I doubt it's really changed a whole lot even since then. But we hope to do that, and this is a subject that we will tackle in the book, so definitely keep an eye out on that. Some of you out here will be able to get a free copy of that. Pretty excited about that. As I said, like our Facebook page. And follow us on Apple and Spotify. Always appreciate a good review on there as well. And as a check out, as I said, my website, ryan-horn.com, for any voiceover needs you need. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode or if you want to be on here, definitely get a hold of me as well at the ryanhornvt at gmail.com email because I'd be glad to have you aboard or love your ideas. We've had both happening through this and uh, always glad to communicate with those of you out there. And as I always say, watch out for your friends and family. They could be victimized as well. Please keep an eye out for them, especially your elderly friends and family. And as always, adopt your next best friend at your local pet shelter. We've got six here in our family now, four dogs, two cats that are all products of rescue. And it's brought us an immeasurable amount of joy. And I know it can for you too. So please do that. Or if you can't do that, volunteer or donate to your local shelter and help them out any way you can. Well, we'll be back next week. We are going to talk about Kenneth Starr, who was the scammer of the stars, as he's going to be called. So we'll have a little bit more of a Hollywood episode again, some celebrities, kind of like what we had last week with the Horowitz podcast. If you didn't hear that, be sure and check that out. That was last week's podcast about a $650 million Ponzi scheme that happened in Hollywood. But I'm thankful you tuned into this one. Please join us again next week. We will see you then, folks. God bless and take care.